All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, here for the NOAA elective, A Man Between Two Worlds. And last week, uh, we dove right in and kind of set the stage for NOAA. Uh, maybe the most enjoyable part was seeing the kind of like the timeline chart where you don't realize how many of these Bible characters overlapped and would have known each other and had conversations and maybe even, even raised families together. And so that's usually an eye-opening experience for everybody. And for me, it kind of makes the Bible come alive because typically when we think of generations, there's not much interaction because we're thinking of ours. And for some people, you may not have known your grandparents. They might have already both been passed away. You may not have known your great-grandparents at all. And so that chart kind of makes the Bible come alive because you see that he's, I mean, Noah's dad would have known Adam, had the opportunity to talk to him. I mean, and when we read scripture, we think, man, that's a long time frame. There's no way. But when you start doing math and how long they live, it becomes very clear they did know each other. They would have talked. So we ended the class with a homework assignment, if you remember. And the homework assignment was to tell a person who has had an impact on your life, like a mentor or someone who's discipled you, either um, contact them via text, a phone call, a letter, an email, of how much they impacted your life and that you are thankful for them. And then I said, come to class next week, which is today, and share. So, anybody want to share? Does anybody want to say that they actually did it or is it, and I kind of forgot and I procrastinated, which I talked about last week. Uh, anybody have any stories to share? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't me. Okay. why I gave you a homework assignment to share, uh, to, to tell somebody who's had an impact on your life that they did have an impact and uh, how much you appreciate them. And so there's the opportunity to share if you actually did the homework assignment or not. And you want to share. I'll give you an out so that I don't I did this. I did this four years ago when I taught this in adult Bible studies, and the person I shared it with was my youth pastor um, from here. His name is Todd Provost, and uh, he was trained out at MacArthur's Church, but um, he's living in North Carolina now. So I just uh, emailed him, and then um, he's not on Facebook, but his wife is. So I shared with his wife too. So it's just a fun experience to do. Um, he knows the kind of impact, but it's always good to have somebody tell you that. And then um, this time, uh, just this summer, I met with somebody that has had a pretty big impact with me uh, in this area and uh, had lunch with them. And uh, he helped me through making the transition from full-time ministry back into the business world. Uh, so this would have been... Uh, about 17 years ago uh, when he had a major impact on my life and uh, really helped me process things and uh, 
he actually, after that time frame, he had asked my permission because he saw the, the changes in my life. And he's like, can I share your story as I talk with people? Because he's like, what you did, most people can't do. And so I'm like, sure. So we actually met um, just last month. And he was like, it's been so long since we've shared stories. And he's like, I could be like ad-libbing and filling in gaps that I may just be making stuff up because it's been so long. So he's like, how about you tell me from your perspective how our time went to see if I'm still telling the story correctly. And uh, he goes, and then um, summarize what, uh, just some key takeaways from our time together. And so uh, he said, it, the way you're telling is exactly I remember it. So it's good to know that my memory is still holding up. And then uh, asked me if I'd be willing to share it sometime uh, at like a, a business meeting. Um, because they meet like once a week and do stuff like that. So I'm like, sure, just let me know whenever and I can come and talk to you. So it's, uh, it's something fun to do. And if you didn't do it, I would, I would still challenge you to do it. Uh, it is very good. And then the additional challenge was for you to build into the life of someone else. So maybe you started to think about that. Maybe you already identified somebody that, hey, I could. Because we're all in different phases of life, right? You may feel like, well, I'm not, I'm not up there yet to be able to uh, mentor somebody. But you know what? There's a brand new Christian that doesn't know much of anything. And you may feel inadequate, but you know a lot more than they do. And you've had a lot more life experiences than they have. And you can come alongside a brand new Christian and really help give them a solid foundation to start off with. So um, I know that a lot of people always have those inadequacy thoughts. Just get those out of your mind because we're all at different phases, we're all at different levels in our maturity, but no matter how inadequate you feel, there's always that brand new Christian that needs help and that needs that connection and needs someone to help show them the basics of Christianity. So anyway, let's start off by doing something fun. And for those of you listening on the podcast, uh, as I said last week, uh, you can email me for notes if you need notes or if you're here in class and you miss a week uh, David B at united-ortho.com and I can email you the notes uh, that you missed. so today um, at your table or if you don't want to move you can, you can uh, do it there but that very first question I hinted at it last week but I'm going to have you Kind of together, take five minutes or so, and I want you to talk to each other and figure out how much you guys as a collective know about Noah. How much do you really know about Noah? So it could involve what Noah did. It can involve who Noah is as a person, right? So think about those questions, who, what, when, why, where, how. Who is Noah? Like, how much do you really know about the guy? Uh, so take five minutes and we'll come back and I won't necessarily quiz you, but I think as we go along in the class, your vision for Noah is going to expand. Sure, sure. If you want to use your Bible to help you out, go for it.
have your own car. One minute.
Alright, time. Five minutes goes by pretty fast. But it was five minutes. So, what I hope you do with your notes is you keep them, and at the end of our time frame, the six weeks that we have, I hope that you go back and you can add to it. And you might be surprised at how much more you can add to it. Um, because the Bible really does have a lot to say about Noah. We, we tend to condense his story down to just the ark. There's a lot of things that we miss uh, that we just kind of read over really quick. We're so focused on the ark and flood and what happened there. We miss all the other things that Scripture has to say about Noah. So um, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We'll spend some time here in, in Genesis 6, uh, kind of introducing who Noah is. And we're going we're gonna to learn really quickly that Noah was a man who had a lot of depth. He had a lot of depth. And so we read a little bit of this uh, last week, kind of setting up what was the culture of Noah's world and how it was really wicked. God, had, God considered it... Um, the most wicked culture of all time. So bad that it brought immediate judgment and um, we'll look at that some more next week. But Genesis 6, and in the midst of this, so if we start at verse 5, the writer writes, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a pretty big but there. So the writer's setting the scene of just how bad and how evil mankind is and how they had basically taken what God had created and had completely destroyed what he created. They had taken order and turned it into disorder and chaos. They had taken what God had told them to do and they had completely rebelled against that and did the exact opposite. And God was so grieved at what he saw and he's like, I need to so upset that my original creation is perfectly destroyed because what did he say about his original creation? What did he call it? Good. It's not good anymore. It's the exact opposite. It is evil. He's like, I didn't create it this way. And I'm so upset that it calls for judgment. I need to judge man for how much he's destroyed my creation. And then there's this big but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a word that we would know really quickly. What does favor remind you of in Scripture? 
It's usually a definition we use to describe a word in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Because the Old Testament is the law and the New Testament is... There's the word. Right, there's the word. So Noah found favor, which is a definition of grace. You know this is the first time grace has appeared in Scripture? Mark it down. Write it down. Genesis 6, 8. It's a great trivia question in your families or something. Name the first place in Scripture that grace is mentioned. Genesis 6, 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was living in the midst of the most evil society of all time. And because of God's grace, God favored him with personal instructions on the impending judgment. Out of everyone on the face of the earth at the time, God looks down and said, man has completely destroyed everything I've created. But Noah has not. I'm going to show him grace. He didn't have to, did he? He could have just condemned Noah with the rest of them and said, I'm just going to completely start over. And he didn't. Instead, he looks down at Noah and he says, I'm showing Noah grace. So let's dive into the lat a little bit because there's a verb right in front of it, right? So you got your subject, your verb, found. Isn't that an interesting word? If you were to look up the Hebrew, it's a simple, active, perfect verb. That's a mouthful, right? But it signifies Noah was actively looking for God's grace. He was actively looking for God's favor. What's the opposite of active? Passive, yeah. Isn't that what Adam did in the garden when he, Eve was having the conversation with Satan, the serpent, about what God said and what he didn't say? What was Adam doing? Was he actively engaged in that scene or was he a passive spectator? Passive isn't viewed good in the scriptures, right? You have to be active. Well, Noah was being active. He was actively looking for God's grace. So what can we learn about this? What can we learn about Noah? And why does that make him so great? Because God intended for us to know this key factor. He wouldn't have put it in scripture if it wasn't important. This is a key factor. The first time grace has appeared. So what can we learn about grace all the way back at the beginning of creation? Well, in spite of the horrible conditions of the world, he was looking for God's direction. In spite of everything going on, Noah was looking for God's direction. He wasn't merely hanging around, kind of sitting in his house, I wonder what God's going to do today. I wonder if I can see what's going on from my kitchen window. Well, you know, the world's kind of going to pot. Uh, Not much I can do. Maybe I'll just sit back on my lazy boy and 
I'll complain to God about how messed up things are. That's not what Noah was doing. Noah was actively engaged. He was looking for God's direction. He was anticipating a response from God. But he wasn't just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. He was actively looking for God to give him instructions. And so the scripture says Noah found the favor that he sought. He was seeking God. He was expecting to hear something from God. So you think about his family tree. It's not a crazy idea that he was expecting to hear from God. Because some of his relatives had spoken with God. And Noah's sitting there. He's standing there. He's being a witness in a lost world. And he's going, I know God is going to answer. I'm not sitting on my butt. I'm not waiting for something to happen. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to be a light in the darkness. I'm going to tell people about God. And God is going to tell me what to do. What is God's solution for this? Because I know this isn't the world God created. I know this isn't how things are supposed to operate. Because I've been taught from my youth what God's word is, what God's will is. And this isn't how it's supposed to be. And because of that, he found favor in the sight of God. Specifically, if you look at verse 9, it starts off, these are the generations of Noah. But look at the first word that is used to describe Noah. He was a what? Righteous, righteous. righteous man. He was a righteous man. Interesting word, right? Noah did what was right. He thought what was right. He acted what was right. He knew what right was. And he did it. Think about the people in Scripture that God has actually used that term from. The list is very small, isn't it? And the one we think of the most is Jesus, right? Because Jesus imputes his righteousness on us. And yet God uses the same word to describe Noah. A righteous man. So it didn't matter if his culture was falling all apart. Didn't matter how much evil was going on in the culture. What characterized Noah? Righteousness. Think about how hard that is. If we were to take a field trip, and and Nate could tell us where to go in Fort Wayne, if we were to take a field trip and say, take us to the roughest neighborhood in Fort Wayne that there's just evil stuff going on. It can be drugs, prostitution, the whole nine yards. Maybe your life's in danger even. Drop us off and say, now I want you to live there. Just try to live there for a week. How righteous do you think we would be? Probably after the first hour, we would start like having some pretty 
evil thoughts in our heads, some complaints to God like, why am I in this situation? Why have you put me here? Right? So we would start off complaining. And then we would move to seeing what people are doing around us. And we might try to counter that. We may try to have some conversations. But what's probably going to happen? We might get beat up. We might get told to shut up. We might get called every name in the book. We get discouraged. And then we start it all over tomorrow, right? And just imagine if that happens every day. How quickly do we want to give up? And then we end up making the decision, you know what? It's probably easier just to get along with these people than to stand for righteousness, to stand for truth. And yet, that's not what Noah did. Noah was in the midst of the most perverse, evil generation that the world has ever seen. Remember last week we read about the Nephilim and how destructive they were on the culture? And it didn't matter because Noah stood firm. And he said, I know what God expects. I know what his will is. I know what his laws are. And I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to think and act and speak righteously. I'm not going to let the culture pull me down. That's huge. That is huge. We have no idea how huge that is. And then the light bulb should go off in that previous verse. Now we know why he found favor in God's eyes. Because it didn't matter how hard life was. Noah was firm. He wasn't compromising with the world. He was righteous. Keep your finger here and turn to Ezekiel 14. I know it's a ways away. So we're not quite sure, because of the flood, we're not quite sure exactly how old the earth is, right? There's theories and that kind of stuff. So we don't know exactly when Noah walked the earth. But we do know when Ezekiel walked the earth. And Ezekiel's time frame was in the late 500 BCs. So between 593 BC and 575 BC, it was Ezekiel's ministry. So we do know that the Exodus was around 2000 BC. And Noah's way before the Exodus. So already 1,500 years after Moses' life, Moses leading the people of Israel. So this is 1,500 years from Moses, and yet Noah was way before that. So let's just say 3,000 years later. Okay, we'll have a little fun here. 3,000 years after Noah, Ezekiel writes, okay? In Ezekiel 14, and... Verse, we'll start at verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, who were the three men? Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver, but their own lives 
by what? Their righteousness declares the Lord. Huge statement. He follows it up again. And we'll start at verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Whew. That's a pretty big statement by God. Because what God is saying here is it doesn't matter what was going on in the culture of Noah's day. It didn't matter what's going on in the culture of Ezekiel's day. It didn't matter how bad things got, how evil things got. If there was one thing God could count on is that those three men would live righteously and they would be the only people spared in that time. Whew. Talk about a statement. So, what is Ezekiel saying? Ezekiel is saying for God, up to Ezekiel's day, here will be another trivia question for you. Up to Ezekiel's day, the biggest three people in the history of the world, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Why? Because of their righteousness. Let that sink in. The big three. We tend to, if somebody asks us, hey, who in the scriptures would you say would you say is maybe the most influential or walk the closest with God? We'd probably say, well, David was a man after God's own heart, so he was pretty close to God. Um, Moses was the giver of the law. He led the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's pretty big. Um, excluding Jesus Christ, because that'd be the obvious answer. Well, Paul's the most prominent in the New Testament. We'd probably list those people up. I don't know if Noah, Daniel, and Job would be in our top ten. I think we'd probably bypass them if we were honest. Because we just think of somebody else higher up the rung. But God says very clear in Ezekiel, these are the big three that have lived in history up to Ezekiel's day. Because these guys are righteous. And it doesn't matter what I throw at them. It doesn't matter if I allow Satan... In Job's case, even Satan tempted. He, he basically took everything away from Job, made his life absolutely miserable. And what happened? Job never wavered. He never complained against God. He never turned away from God. He remained faithful and righteous. And God says, it doesn't matter what life throws at these guys. They're always going to be righteous. And I'll always protect them. I can always count on these three. Satan, do whatever you want. These three aren't turning. Wow, what a statement. Job 1 3. What? Uh huh. Don't we have to assume that I know with us, 
special instances. Yep. Yep. certain time frames, right? Yep. Yep. And Christ's righteousness still would have to impute them, right? So, yes. Job 1.3. What a way to start off Job. Job 1.3 calls Job the greatest of all the people of the East. The greatest of all the people of the East. And then in Job 1.8, it says, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Man, can, they should have put that on his tombstone. You want to know who Job was? Read Job 1.3 and 1.8. None like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And we know from the New Testament... Jesus himself said it. When you're talking about economic status, who has the hardest time to come to Christ? The wealthy, right? Because they're self-sufficient. They don't need Jesus. They can have whatever money can buy. And who is Job? The rich guy. He was the wealthiest man of his day. If anybody should have depended on his own self, on his own wealth, it would have been Job. And what, is, what does God say about him? He was blameless, upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. So much so, here's the irony, so much so that... Job teaches Satan a lesson. Satan was all prideful and haughty before God, right? God, the only reason why Job is successful is because, you know, you got a hedge of protection around him. You've blessed him. He's got all this money. He's got a great family. He's got all this property. But you know what? If you take everything away from this guy, if you make him dirt poor and you let me inflict damage on his body personally... He'll curse you. He'll turn away from you. And God's like, okay, you can do anything you want. You just can't take his life. So he's like, great, because I'm going to prove you wrong, God, because you know what? I know more than you know, right? You can just hear him because he's so prideful, right? And what happens? God says, Satan, Satan, Satan. I know so much more about people than you do. I created everything. I knew Job wouldn't falter. And Job didn't. And Satan has to like lick his wounds and go, oh man, God got me again. How did this Job guy withstand me? Because I'm, I'm powerful. I can usually make people do whatever they want, I want them to do. They usually do my will. I can't get Job to do anything. And I wanted him to curse God. God's like, yep. That Job, he's an amazing man. He, bo- he took Job down to bare nothing. 
and Job never faltered. Amazing. Daniel chapter 2. What do we what do we know about Daniel? Joe, uh, Daniel chapter 2 verses 48 and 49. King Nebuchadnezzar, it, you know, even if you hated history class, usually history class brought up Nebuchadnezzar because he was he was one of the most powerful rulers in history. Nebuchadnezzar commissioned Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar actually called him a great man. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not an Israelite. He's not a Jew, right? Babylonian. And in 48 to 49, it says that Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now, this is a foreign king. This isn't an Israelite king. This is a foreign king. We also know from Daniel that he was a leader of the scientists of his day. He served as a senior political advisor. And get this, think, think about our country when, we, when we're talking about senior political advisors. They usually don't last very long, right? And they usually change when we, when we change presidents, right? Daniel served as a senior political advisor for six kings, 70 years. So it didn't matter who was king. The next king was like, this Daniel dude, he's really smart. He knows his stuff. There isn't anybody like him. Like, he's sitting on my court. He's going to be my right-hand man. Crazy. And in Daniel 10, verse 11... God identifies him as a man greatly loved. Now, God's not talking that the Israelites thought of Daniel as a man greatly loved. He could have been, but this is what God thought of him. God thought of Daniel as a man greatly loved. Daniel's huge. I mean, just think of his early life. What was one of the first tests he had to deal with in the Babylonian kingdom? Hey, I'm going to give everybody the best food you can have. And Daniel and his buddies do what? We don't want that. We want vegetables only. We're vegetarians. And the king's like, what? Well, let's just test this out, okay? You guys have your stupid little vegetarian thing. My my, uh, smart people... They'll have my choice food, the choice meats, the best meals money can buy. And at the end of this test, we'll see who's smarter and what happened. Daniel and his buddies were smarter than the king's advisors, right? And so then he, you know, ends up erecting a statue that says everybody has to bow down to the king, right? And what do his Daniel and his buddies do? Yeah, we serve God and God alone. Well, it wasn't a threat of punishment. It was actual punishment, right? The law had teeth to it. And they get thrown in the fire, right? And does anything happen? 
No. In fact, the, the eyewitnesses said there appeared somebody else in there to protect them. Then the king gets tricked again, and Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. Should have been swift and instant death, right? Because it's not like they were feeding these animals like the zoo does. It was like pretty much starve them for a while, and then that way when we throw somebody in there, they just get ripped to pieces, right? It's kind of like sport. Well, what happens? God shuts the mouth of the lion. Daniel can use the lion as a pillow, right? Nothing happens. I mean, you just see that over and over early on in his life. And it just sets him up for the rest of his life that, you know what? It doesn't matter what the consequences are going to be for me to serve God. I'm always going to serve God. And God blessed him to serve six kings over 70 years. Man. So Noah, if we go back to Genesis 6, Noah was that righteous man, blameless in his generation. So we know Noah had to be a person of significance in his region, right? People knew who Noah was. Many scholars think he was a businessman before the flood. Because when God said build the ark, if he didn't know what he was doing, how could he have procured all the supplies he was going to need? How would he have known all the supplies he was going to need? Now, we could conjecture and say, well, God told him what to get. But the scriptures don't say God told him all the supplies he needed. He was, he, he would have done business and he would have went and said, you know, I need, you know, X amount of timber. Well, who's got a lot of timber? Who can help me get the timber here? He would have had to think all that stuff out. He was given a monumental task. Had it rained up to this point? They didn't really know what rain was. And so when God tells them to build an ark, because it's going to rain, you and I, who may, if we were Noah and had never seen rain, didn't, didn't really know what it was, we would be like, I don't know what rain is. Like, God, like, what's going on here? I don't understand. Like, you want me to build an ark for rain? What's rain? And why do I need to build an ark? Noah was just like, okay, God told me to build an ark. He said it's going to rain. I trust him. I'll go do it. Now, last week I asked you one of the reasons why you took the class. And nobody said that you were wanting to, you, you know, you were in the business for an ark. Well, if you end up needing an ark, I know a guy. Okay? I had to throw that dad joke out there. That's just, that's just good. But, <laughs> yep. Contrary to the evol- evolutionary teachings of today, that each man lived in caves and grass huts during this time frame, the Bible paints a very different picture of Noah's day. There were cities in Noah's day. We read about that with Cain, right? There were cities. They had developed technology that included metallurgy, construction skills, musical instruments, 
Noah's day functioned much like our world does today. Turn to Luke chapter 17. By tonight, you're going to be like, I didn't realize the Bible talked about Noah so much. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, he says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Yes? Yep, Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus' day was just like Noah's day, which is just like our day. People eat, they drink, they marry, they're given in marriage. Life is normal, right? People are just going about their day seems normal. And then all of a sudden it was normal until the day Noah entered the ark. And Jesus said, it's going to be that way when the Son of Man comes. Everyone's going to be doing normal life. And all of a sudden one day Jesus is going to appear and bam! Life isn't the same anymore. Noah was important in his day and fully dedicated to the work of God during his life. So, I've got there on your handouts, character counts. Do you find yourself waiting for God to do something for you, or are you actively pursuing Him so He can show you grace? This is a question that you need to wrestle with on your own, with God. Just be honest and say, God, I tend to be passive. I tend to be passive in my relationship with you. I tend to be passive in my life. I tend to be passive in making decisions. I'm always waiting for you to, like, do something. And I get really frustrated when I don't feel like you're doing anything. That's an honest conversation, right? That's having some honesty with God. You know, God has a weakness in my life. If Noah's taught me anything, I should be active. I should be active in my relationship with you. I should be active in making decisions for me and my family. I should be active in my church. I shouldn't be waiting around for you. You're going to do what you do. And I'm going to be active so that you can show me grace. Where the two come together, right? We just don't sit back and, oh God, do what you're going to do. Can you imagine if we did that as a church? Well, God, we'll just sit here and pray and pray and pray. And I'm not saying praying's wrong. We need to pray, right? But if that's all we ever do and say we're just going to sit here and we're just going to commune and pray, 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 and hopefully God will do something. It's not going to be a very effective way to witness, is it? So there's prayer. That's active in and of itself, right? That's an act. That's an action. We are actively praying, but at the same time, we'll spend time in here with one another, and then what do we do? We leave, and we go out into our culture, into our community, and we do what? We're to be actively involved. 
Not separated and isolated. Oh, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't want to be a part of it. No, we've been given a mission to go and reach people for Christ. And we're to conduct our lives in ways that will draw people to Christ. To lead our families to a relationship with Christ. Man, that takes a lot of action, doesn't it? That's, that takes a lot of energy the way it is, right? It's not easy being a parent with young kids. So, action. So that's something that you can talk with God about on your own. But we, we tend to not think of Noah as one of the great saints. What can we learn about living righteously? have a group discussion here, sit at individual tables, throw out some, just what you've heard so far about Noah, we, we, we talked about Noah's righteousness, Job's righteousness, Daniel's righteousness, what can we learn about these guys living righteously? Oh, yeah, because we, we tend to want to bargain with God and say, man, God, if you would just change my circumstances, man, I would serve you 100%. I'd go all out for you. Right? And we know that's not true. Typically, when our life is super easy, we get really lazy spiritually because everything's easy. And, well, you know, God's there, but I don't really need him. And then the minute our circumstances change, even the slightest bit to the worst, we're like, oh, God, like... Where have you been? Like, I need you right now. Like, can you change the circumstance immediately to make my life all rainbows and lollipops, right? So good. It, it was regardless of circumstances with their lives, right? No matter what was going on, I'm going to be right to follow God. What else? relationship that they had with God. So they had a benefit of being Noah's kids. So Noah's righteously God was going to take care of their family. But we know that Noah invested a lot of time and energy in his family to teach them the right ways, to teach them God's ways. What else? years, right? How long do we live? We, str- we struggle to live righteously a year at a time, don't we? And as Larry said earlier, we even have the help of the Holy Spirit. No one ne- didn't necessarily have the Holy Spirit living in him the whole 900 years. He would have had him in parts. Scripture just doesn't say. 
But we have the added advantage of the Holy Spirit living within us, God's Spirit himself. And yet Noah lived righteously, not for a year, not for 50 years, over 900 years. You should get like the longevity award, right? Man. So I'll let you think about that some more at home, about what are some ways we can learn about living righteously. Genesis 6-9, we'll pick back up there. So it says that Noah was a righteous man, specifies what righteousness, blameless in his generation. Ooh, here's characteristic number two about Noah. Noah what? Noah walked with God. Think about that. Now the Hebrew can literally mean that he walked with God. It's the same word used where Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. It's the same word. But it can also be used idiomatically to signify closeness, fellowship, relationship. So it can mean both. No one's quite sure. We could say it encompasses both. But there's another trivia question for you. You didn't know you were going to get so many trivia questions out of Noah, did you? There's only two people in Scripture that were ever described as walking with God. Noah's one. Who's the other? Enoch. Enoch. Right. And he's in whose family tree? Noah's family tree? Isn't that interesting? Enoch, Enoch walked with God so closely that he was spared death, right? And on your charts last week, I had the asterisk there that he didn't die. He was taken up to heaven by God when he was 365 years old. So Enoch walked with God for 365 years so closely that God just said, forget death. I want you up here with me so that we can just hang out and talk and have a great time. Lo and behold, one of Enoch's relatives, years later, is described having that same relationship with God. Noah walked God. So God expounds on what he means by walk. And he says that Noah was a just person. Just, we tend to think of making wise decisions. He was known for his equitable dealings with others. Think about it. Everyone that Noah knew was a rebel of God. They were evil. Can you imagine everybody you encountered was evil? And you have to do business with these people? And you have to interact with these people? Noah was always just. He didn't try to do something for his own advantage. He didn't try to take advantage of them. I'm sure they tried to take advantage of him. He's the nice guy. He's the God follower. Let's make his life miserable. Let's see if we can rip him off, right? Let's make fun of him. The world around him was wicked and dishonest, but Noah was honest in his dealings with people. 
which gave him a great reputation in the community, right? That's why people knew him. He was proven to be a man of integrity. And then perfect. Walk has the idea of perfect. He was a man without condemnation. Blameless has that idea that was just before this. So Noah was above reproach. He was blameless. No one could accuse Noah of doing anything wrong. Think about that. We do, we do things wrong almost every hour, don't we? We have a wrong thought. We have a wrong action. Our spouse tells us something, and instead of reacting in the proper godly way, we do a snide little comment, right? Or we get a little angry, or we get a little upset, or our kids do something, and it sets us off. And why did my kid do that? That was so stupid. And that, how could you do that? Like, right? Almost like every hour. Sure. But they couldn't prove they couldn't prove he was wrong. Try to convince them. Mm-hmm. But Noah walked with God. David might have been a man after God's own heart, but Noah walked with God. He was tight. He was as close as you could possibly get. We have the Holy Spirit living with us. We should be closer to God than Noah was. But Noah walked with God. Amazing. Second uh, Peter 2 5. Peter's writing this, obviously. And he says, If he, referring to God, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, listen to how he describes Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What's another word for herald? What does some of your Bible say? Yeah. He was a preacher of righteousness. Think of what that means in the context of Genesis chapter 6. Noah didn't just walk with God. He didn't just, he just wasn't righteous. He just didn't, you know, do the right thing. He also did what? Every single person he encountered was an unbeliever. Every single person was fully in rebellion against God absolutely hated God and what did Noah do preached righteousness to him shared the gospel with him Christ said why are you doing that this is what God says to do don't you want to please God and what would he, what did he get in return So Noah had the guts to stand up publicly for righteous behavior when everyone else openly rejected.
that's how we, we tend to view it. I mean, that's the only people that are willing to follow you with your family. That's kind of a given, right? They're supposed to follow you. Right? Yet, Noah was not considered a failure in ministry. He was not a failure in ministry. I'm going to read one more passage for you here. You can jot it down. Hebrews 11. We know that chapter is what? Hall of Fame. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He's in the Hall of Fame. No surprise once we understand that he's considered one of the big three in the Old Testament. But he was not a failure. So I leave you with this question. Noah loved people. Second greatest commandment, right? Using Noah's example, how can you love others? He may not have had any converts, but Peter refers to him as a preacher of righteousness. How big is Noah's heart that day after day of being told, I am not going to follow God, I am not going to follow God, I am not going to follow God, get out of my face, leave me alone. And yet Noah cared so deeply about them that he just shared with them the gospel day after day after day. That's a huge heart. So we know he loved people. I'm sure it broke his heart as much as God's when the flood actually occurred. Because he wanted, he honestly wanted to see those people come to Christ. He wasn't, you know, standing in the ark, clapping and going, yeah, they finally got what they deserved. Yeah. He would have been broken. And saying, man, man's sin was so great that God had to wipe mankind out. And for whatever reason, God showed me favor. Because Noah would have had a proper sense that I don't deserve that. I may have been in the right family tree, but that didn't guarantee my outcome. He'd have been very grateful to God. I'm sure there was some praising going on on the ark. I'm sure there was some praying going on on the ark. I'm sure there was some conversations with God on the ark. Noah had a huge heart for people. And he wasn't the Bible thumper that we think of, preaching righteousness. He literally and deeply cared about these people. He did not want to see them be put to death. So what can we learn from Noah's love? Think about that over this next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for getting to know Noah better.
to getting to know who Noah was as a man and what you thought of him. We have your words, Lord, to know exactly what you thought of Noah. It's not us. It's not our opinion. It's not our conjecture. We have your very words of your exact thoughts of Noah. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his example. And Father, I pray that we could even be half the man Noah was. Hard shoes to fill. Father, challenge our own hearts. And when we get discouraged because maybe a family member isn't coming to Christ, help us not to get discouraged, but help us to continue to talk to them out of love. Father, when we think we've arrived spiritually, help us to be humbled and realize that we're not blameless, we're not upright, we're not walking with you like Noah did. Help it to drive us to pursue you even more. Thank you for their participation, the people who are attending this tonight, and for any of those who may listen to this on the podcast. May they have a greater understanding of who Noah is and how we can take lessons from his life and apply it even to today. In Jesus' name, amen.